Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There have been so many moments that should have been watershed moments for Australia on this issue. And so many women who have had, and it has been mostly women, who have had to stand up and explain their pain and have their stories told and picked apart and questioned before we got to this point. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host, and with me is my absolutely splendiferous and marvellous team. Amy Ramakis. Sarah Martin. And Paul Carr. Sounding absolutely pro. And you are <laughs> on one of our now regular episodes, which we are, what do we call these? Ask me anything. Ask me anything. Thank you. Yes. So thank you for all of the questions that rolled in today on the socials. Uh, <laughs> we'll go through the legal ones or the ones that won't get us into into <laughs> defamation territory. But no, seriously, thank you for all of the input. I think you've given us lots of things to chew over for the next sort of half hour or so. So we're going to start with Sarah and a question from Adam Logan. Yes, straight in. Adam, thank you for this question, Adam Logan. Why is Scott Morrison's approval currently of 55%? 57%. There you go, 57%. So, you know, yes. he's on the money. Give or take. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, you can look at this from two ways. Like, are we are we looking at that and saying 55% is very high or are we looking at it saying 55% is very low? Because the answer to the question probably either way you look at it is women is the problem. That's where, why we've seen it drop quite significantly. Yep. So it was a lot higher. I mean, people might be asking why it's still at 55%. I think there was, from the tone, I mean, Twitter mm. obviously is not the best environment for tone spotting but I, but I think no I, I do think it was it was more surprise like why is it that, mm. at that level given the last What's five happened? weeks I, yes. I, that's that's how I took it apologies well, Adam you'll be in touch probably if... men because <laughs> men yes. don't yes. seem to mind much as to what's been happening in the past couple of months if you look at the breakdown in the essential poll that Murph um, reported on a Monday or sorry was it Monday yeah it was Monday, Monday. yeah Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, God, um, I can't remember. The, the, anyway, <laughs> yes, anyway, The Guardian, the latest um, Guardian essential poll, yes. Um, the, the support among women has dropped quite substantially, but for men it, it hasn't really moved around that much, which I think is, a, is really interesting, and it's going to be, I guess, interesting to see whether that moves further mm. in the next one or whether that 55% is a base from which the Prime Minister can start to recover, but it clearly shows um, that the gloss has come off. The gloss has come off, but also why do we think it's... 
you know, what what are the sort of attributes? And this, this is not a fair question, really, for Sarah, because Sarah's been off for a little while tending to a new baby, and we're absolutely delighted to welcome her back. But I think maybe the rest of us will be acutely conscious of the preceding 12 months and the story of the last 12 months. Has COVID given him a bedrock, do you yeah. think, the Prime Minister? Yeah, I mean, he, that would be my view. Yeah, he comes off a high base because of the handling of COVID. He, he recovered at the start of last year from terrible poll numbers due to the bushfires. And then because of handling of, of COVID, a better health response than, than almost anyone in the world and a, and a quicker economic recovery in the back half of the year. Yeah, he's obviously uh, popular, although interestingly less popular than the state premiers mm. in most states. That's been a phenomenon throughout, yeah, Amy. Thinking. He also has name recognition when people look at those polls too. Like they, they recognise Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister and we can't underestimate the impact of having an hour a day press conference you know, pretty much to lay out the COVID response for most of last year and what that would have done in terms of that name recognition. He's a, he's a known quantity and I think when people look at those questions they go, I, I know who that bloke is. I do wonder, though, whether we're going to see the same sort of Scott Morrison effect on the next election that we saw on the last election. Is Scott Morrison's personal popularity enough to drag the coalition over the line again, as he did at the last election when he wasn't a known quantity? And I think that's the question a lot of people are going to be asking themselves as we get closer to the election, whenever that is. Which is is a bit of a segue, actually, to... Harry Larson's question, which is the next cab off the rank, which Sarah's going to lead on, is Morrison's leadership safe until the election? I mean, it's sort of like a hilarious question to ask, really, in some respects from where we've been. But not for Australian politics. No, no, no. Well, not for Australian politics. And obviously this question has been posed in the light of events in the light, over the last six weeks. So, Sarah, going to take a punt? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I I think, yes, he is safe until the next election, but I don't think that means we can underestimate the grumblings about his performance in recent times. I think Scott Morrison was seen as he pulled off quite a coup with the last election that no one expected him to to pull off. Mm -hmm. So he has the support of his party room and it has been a fairly united party room and he's been able to get everyone on the same page in a way that Tony Abbott and and Malcolm Turnbull were never able to do. So, yes, I do think he is safe and I, I... I mean, who knows what will happen between now and the next election, and you never say never in this business, particularly what we've seen over the past decade. But yes, I think at this stage, they think he's 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 fluffed it. It hasn't been a great, uh, hasn't been Morrison at his best. It could get worse, it could get better, but at the moment, I don't think there's any you know serious moves to remove him. It's just grumbles. Mm. Anyone? I would agree with that with one caveat, which is that unlike the Labor side where there isn't a clear challenger to Anthony Albanese, there is a, a clear successor to Scott Morrison in Josh Frydenberg. And so uh, while I agree that having saved them at the last election and having led through COVID means that absolutely they would want to, to keep him in place, I would just say that things could move quickly if you know there's, there's an obvious person to move to if he's not able to, to recover the government's position. But that's 
a bit speculative. Hmm. I think he's got a lot of challenges. Got the vaccine rollout, which is not going to plan, as we know, and, and the Guardian's looked at the data on that, and we are well behind the planned targets and metrics. You've got the coalition starting to rumble in the party room about energy policy again. You've got the Nats who are starting to like jump up and say, hey, we're still here and causing a bit of trouble in the party room again. You've lost Craig Kelly, so you've lost a number there. We don't know what's going to happen to Andrew Lamming in the next couple of weeks, months or whatever, which, you know, depending on whether or not you count Tony Smith as a number for the government, puts them at, you know, 75 and not necessarily having all of the voting numbers on the House. There's a lot of things outside of the past six weeks which are sort of funneling up for Scott Morrison. And he his main skill has been dismissing a lot of criticisms and issues and just deflecting. But we're now reaching, I think, that critical point where he can't anymore. And I think how he responds to what's happening within his own party is going to dictate how the next couple of months go. And that's before we even get into the budget. Mm, Yes, which is creeping up on us. Yes, whether we like it or not. Okay, from Tim Fitzsimmons. Again, Sarah's going to lead in this one. This is this is a hard question, Tim. Thanks, thanks a bunch, mate. In which seats will the next federal election be won and lost? And what is likely to be the top issue that will decide people's vote in marginal seats? No pressure or anything. Go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, how long have we got? Because this is not a, this is not a straightforward answer. But I mean, I think you know the. the the election will be won and lost in key in, in in a handful of seats. I don't think at this stage we're looking like you know we're in landslide territory, even mm. though some may suggest otherwise. We're looking at Queensland and we're looking at Northern Tasmania. That is certainly where the election will be won or lost, in in my opinion. The issues in those seats, we've heard already from Anthony Albanese again at this conference and and the government as well in this space. This is going to be about jobs. It's going to be about economic recovery in the wake Mm. of the the COVID downturn, which is really interesting ground, which it's traditionally the coalition's strong suit. So there is some nervousness that if you're going to be fighting an election on the economy, that automatically plays into the hands of the conservative side of of politics. But uh, Labor is very focused on secure jobs, better employment yeah. and there's and fertile ground there and particularly with what happens with with job keeper ending you've got 150,000 people potentially out of work what that means how that flows through and how many of those are in the seats that matter so it's it's i think it's going to be about jobs queensland you know i'll hand over to my, to, to amy yes. who's the queensland uh, expert yes. which particular yes. seats in queensland uh, well queensland is is a difficult one because you the coalition is absolutely at capacity at, at queensland i mean they've got what what is it 23 of the 30 seats or something like that that's not to say though that labor is going to necessarily retain all of the seats that they've got there i mean lily is another seat that's still kind of, you know, on the on the bubble there. But then you've got Leichhardt in Cairns, which Warren Ench uh, has, which is also in danger for the coalition because when when you look at uh, JobKeeper ending this week, Queensland went into lockdown right before the Easter holidays. And everyone I am speaking to at home is talking about just how awful it is for all of the tourism operators. And that is a huge issue in Queensland. Then you look at places like Flynn, and it, which is in central Queensland, Queensland, where Labor has got what they hope is a pretty strong candidate and mining is no longer as big an issue in Queensland as it was at the last election. So it's a really unknown quantity what is going to happen there. I mean, Labor needs to win, what is it, six, seven seats, but the coalition has to 
win everything that it's already got. It can't, mm, it can't afford to lose seats, more yeah. than mm. than four seats, or it's it's mm. we're in minority government, you know, on the, just on those numbers. So I think that Queensland will play a role, but I agree with Sarah. It's Northern Tasmania, and I also think WA is going to be a, a pretty big surprise in this election, not just from the state election results, but also as Sarah has pointed out in the office several times this week, uh, the coalition have lost all of their big names in WA, uh, and that has a huge impact on on brand awareness and where people decide to put their vote. Yeah, WA is genuinely interesting. I think, Paul, unless you've got a bit, no, haven't got a burning thought, we should just, because I've got a long list here and I want to get through as many of the questions as I can. We are going to go to Paul now because uh, Sarah flagged vaccinations mm. and that seems like a neat segue, I think, to go there. So... A question from Wendy Little. Why have 4 million Australians not been vaccinated as promised? Yes, so the original promise was 4 million by the end of March. Instead, we only got to about 600,000, so missed it by quite a bit. And the two reasons are vaccine supply and then the rate at which doses are administered. So on vaccine supply, Australia's rollout is in the first step is imports of Pfizer and AstraZeneca for overseas. And now that CSL has started producing AstraZeneca, it's it's now moving into domestic production. But the issue was very heavily reliant in the first stage on the imports. And rather than an initial burst, we got more of a trickle. You know, the EU and Italy um, stopped some exports of AstraZeneca. Brendan Murphy, the, the health department secretary, said, you know, earlier in March, we were supposed to have 3.8 million doses of AstraZeneca by then, but instead we only had 700,000. So first of all, it's just it's just an issue of not having Supply. enough uh, not to, yeah. you know, jabs to put in people's arms. And then there is the rate at which they're being administered. So the difficulty with setting up GP clinics and making appointments, the floods in New South Wales caused a, an issue. There are also the states are rolling them out at different rates, being conservative about whether they hold back a second dose or whether the Commonwealth is doing that for them. So the, 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 the pace is also not what, what would be desired as oh, well. Yeah, OK. Well, that covers the nuts and bolts to uh, lead Paul, but everyone uh, everyone have uh, weigh in on this one. This one's from Kylie, don't have a surname. Is the government being held accountable for what's happening in the vaccination program? Yes, I think I think Labor has done a good job of pointing out that, you know, the government raised expectations. No one forced them to set this uh, four million target. And, you know, as these supply issues were happening, the government was claiming that it wasn't going to slow the, 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 the rollout down, which just didn't, didn't seem possible. But then when they had to, give, you know, push back the target or give up on the target, they said, oh, well, there's been an interrupted supply. So I, I think that they have uh, had difficulty uh, explaining that. Um, the October date that everyone will have been that it will be fully vaccinated by October will also stick in people's minds. They had to water that down from fully vaccinated, meaning two doses, to oh you'll be fully protected, but that oh, means wow. you'll only have your your first <laughs> dose. So I think that that date will also stick in people's minds, not just the four million number. Yeah, the others. Uh, you guys just thoughts like uh, I just. I just slightly interpret Kylie's question here a little bit just on this accountability point. I think sort of what sits underneath the question that we're being asked is 
will the dynamic that sort of prevailed last year, which is a certain amount of, well, not cutting slack, that's ridiculous because that didn't happen, but a certain amount of, look, this is a really big crisis that we face, got to cut them a bit of slack when things don't go according to plan or entirely within their control. Like, I think there was a forgiveness, a level of resting forgiveness in the electorate last year about some of this stuff. Uh, vaccination's a big, high-profile thing that the Commonwealth is responsible for. Um, what do we think about that in terms of the accountability dynamics, Sarah? I mean, I think it's really interesting because last year what we saw, and this is prob- probably part of the equation, is we saw sort of a suspension of politics as usual. So there was sort of this detente between the states and the federal government that they weren't going to, you know... Um, get stuck into each other over over, over lockdowns and, and mm. travel bans and and border closures etc and that took a little while to find its equilibrium but that did that was sort of the prevailing climate last year it's interesting with this we saw this morning for example some federal government MPs come out and and have a crack at the states for for the vaccine rollout which obviously, you know, stoked the ire of, of the state leaders. And then Morrison very quickly backtracked on that rhetoric in his press conference today. So uh, in terms of, like, I guess the way that the states and the and the federal government are interacting with each other, um, you know, I, I think there is a... That seems to be changing, and perhaps that is reflecting the, the, the fact that people are expecting this to happen so life can get back to normal. Life is not back to normal yet. We've got this new lockdown in Queensland. Is there is there a shift in how people are expecting governments of both sides well, to, like to respond? Patience. Yeah, like yeah, a patience. Their patience has been tested. Yeah, exactly, Amy. Well, I, I think that people are looking around the world at vaccine rollouts, at countries that didn't do as well at, as containing the initial pandemic, and they are seeing large amounts of the population be vaccinated, you know, a few hiccups, but fairly smoothly, and it's happening on schedule or ahead of schedule. It's happening in an ordered fashion. It's just sort of being rolled out. And we keep being told by the federal government that we need to look to the rest of the world and say, aren't we lucky because we didn't go through what they did with COVID. But now we're looking at the rest of the world going, well, where are my vaccinations? I mean, when you look at the early numbers, take the UK as an example of a, a country that didn't do so well in the initial response. When you look at the initial numbers of how the UK rollout went out in their first week or so, they had four point something of the percent of the population vaccinated. Australia had about one percent. Like we're just not managing to roll it out at the same rate. And they've had issues with booking systems. They've had issues, as Paul says, with raising expectations. And now we're hearing the, oh, it's the states to blame and the states, including the Berejiklian government, the same side of politics as the federal government, are actually saying, you know what? No, like we're not getting what we need from the federal government. And I think unless we see some sort of ordered national cabinet response to this, this is going to go on for for quite some time. And I don't think that people have the patience for that. Oh, I think uh, I think the simple answer to the accountability question is yes. Yeah, and it's it's not just the federal state dynamic; it's also the the Labor coalition yes. dynamic. Yeah. But Good Anthony point. Albanese. Yeah offered bipartisanship last year, but on vaccines has basically declared open season shortly before Christmas. He said, you know, why aren't they accelerating the timetable? And now it's 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 all there to play for. Why do we only have the two vaccines? You know, the, the, all of those things are things they criticise the government for. Mm, exactly. Now, I want to do this next one quickly because we've got a, a, a chunk of the conversation 
that Amy's going to lead that's quite substantial. So I just want to leave a swing room for that. But but I'm really uh, interested actually in this question again from Harry Larson who says, vaccines aside, are we deluding ourselves about what sort of world exists post-COVID? Where will the no-go go zones be globally and will there be ongoing implications for travel and airlines and the rest? It's sort of, again, I think translating this question just means like, are we kind of delusional to think that we get the jab and then it's all just back to how it was sort of at the end of 2019? So what do you reckon, Paul? Uh, well, it depends how quickly we get the vaccines to um, developing countries. I mean, there are efforts to collectivise that through the COVAX system, and there's also a suggestion maybe they should waive the IP so that they can be produced uh, mm, push uh, more, it out faster. Push yeah. it out faster. Uh, let's assume that we don't do that, and there's you know still large pockets of of COVID around. I think you're probably more likely to have a list of banned countries that, is, that you know Australia or other countries don't don't allow people to come in from but maybe once our own citizens have been vaccinated we'll allow them to travel out into the rest of the world and 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 come back and it also it also depends on whether or not there are more um, you know variations of concern and how aggressive those changes are uh, whether the, and whether the vaccines protect against those because we might see a situation where you have to rejig and reformulate the vaccines for for the new strains and the Pfizer mRNA can do that quite quickly AstraZeneca can be tweaked but that will take longer CSL has said that they you know are going to be rolling out the the you know let's call it AstraZeneca 1.0 for for all of this year and couldn't really be be doing that until next year so it really depends whether you see that sort of variation mm, mm. any uh, no no we're good i think that's a good summary the only other thing i would add to it in terms of airlines and travel and stuff is uh, learned behaviour during COVID. Like, I seriously wonder what on earth is going to happen to business travel after this pandemic. I mean, maybe in a couple of years' time, everybody just loves to, you know, sort of go go off on a day-long trip in order to do a conference meeting in another city or whatever else. Maybe we just snap back to that at some point. But I really wonder about that whether the the market has sort of semi-permanently fallen out of that because of technology and other things. But anyway, that's a yeah. whole other... It would be a brave friend to be the first person in your social circle to have a destination wedding after COVID. <laughs> like, who's going to have the first destination wedding? <laughs> that is true. That is true. Anyway, so anyway, hopefully we covered that one off. Now, Amy, from Ian Maddox, Mannix, forgive me, Ian. Are the allegations around sexual misconduct a coalition problem? Or do Labor and the Greens have the same issues? Labor and the Greens absolutely have the same issues. This isn't one side of politics or one side of society or, you know, just even one side of of the people that you know. This is something that permeates everything and everybody and every household and every political party. The reason I think that we're hearing this time about what is happening in the coalition or what is alleged to have happened in the coalition is because there doesn't seem to have been many instances where these allegations have been addressed before 
that they've they've become public, uh, that there's been a lot of effort to kind of go, you know, this is something that we need to look at as a cultural problem. And I think also they've been in government for quite some time and, and uh, they are responsible for what is happening in for their own party inside the building. They, they have the authority there. They've been in government for eight or so years. Parliament House operates by, you know, what the government wants to happen. And so when you're talking about, you know, stuff, staffers and things like that, you do tend to look at what's happening at the government because they are the people who are in power. We know that the Greens have have had issues in the past that's been public. We know that Labor have had issues. We know that there are social media groups where women are talking about behaviour and allegations of abuse and assault that have happened to them. We also know that about a year ago, Labor started looking at their own processes for dealing with this, uh, with these allegations, and they're currently going through that. I think the issue is who is speaking, why they're speaking, and what is being done to address what they're raising. And I think the last six weeks in particular has been because the response has not been to the satisfaction of the people who have been raising these allegations and raising these issues. Mm, That's a good point. Sarah? I think it's also, I mean, it it is a cultural moment and it is, I think, perhaps because of how shocking the Brittany Higgins case an allegation was, it has sort of shocked the system as sort of, it's one of those, um, you know, black swan moments or one of mm. those watersheds where because it sort of like cut through and because of because of the, it was just so horrific and shocking and And universal. And yes. universal. Yeah. That mm. it sort of opened the floodgates. So I, th- I think, I mean, I, I don't think I underestimate the importance of that particular event in sort of you know, shocking the system, and then that sort of allowing all these other complaints and incidents to come to come out. I mean, I have only been back at work for the past week, so you guys have been covering this in my absence. So you know, your thoughts are, are far more interesting and relevant. But I, I, from the, from being on the outside, it sort of seemed to me that it was sort of a, sh- a shock to the system, and then then everything comes tumbling down. Mm, She sort of has, in an amazing way and possibly not in a way that she necessarily intended, created this kind of space that... uh that others can now occupy, uh, Brittany Higgins, I mean, Paul? Mm, yeah, I was going to uh, agree with Amy that while all parties have this problem, that it's it's about whether or not the complaints are treated seriously. And, you know, Brittany Higgins herself has said that, you know, the perception of hypocrisy that Scott Morrison standing on stage with Grace Tame and, and the, the feeling that her complaint was never taken seriously was is what motivated her. I think the the reason the questioner asks this is, you know, why do we see more public complaints at the moment on one side? Mm. Perhaps that's because Labor's new process is dealing with this behind the scenes and we might see outcomes of that in, in, in future and, and punishments meted out to people. But, you know, it could just be staffers that are, that are sacked and are never heard from again and don't become a public story. Labor also has, you know, more women in the party because of their quota system and you know perhaps that critical mass means that there's a, a, while it's a problem in every party there is a, closer to zero tolerance for that in in labor still not zero but clo- closer I just think on an organizational level labor is better at dealing with these things they sort of historically seem to have a better sort of structure or process more centralized it enables them to deal with problems 
more easily. I, w- I wonder too, and uh, you know, just for any listeners, you know, understand that we know this is an all sides problem, and I think it should be clear to people that anybody who wants to bring stories forward, they will be treated with a great deal of seriousness. But I wonder myself a little whether party discipline's an issue here too, mm. uh, that there's... Uh, I agree exactly what Paul said about there is a culture of feminism in Labor that that does not exist in the Coalition at, at the moment. It, Absolutely. Like that, yeah. That's a fact. That is just a fact. But I wonder myself whether... Because obviously there is a much... The, the Liberal and National parties have a more tolerant for, you know, people coming out of the cupboard saying various things. I don't mean that literally, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's a more free-range culture, whereas in Labor, it's it's much more a collectivist culture. Mm. And whether, yeah, anyway, we'll, we shall see in the fullness of time whether party discipline's a factor here or not, I well, think. Well, I would just only add to that, Labor are going through their processes, and as we know from, you know, public statements, it's all very confidential at the moment. We don't even know if complaints have been made, Mm. I think the test for Labor is going to be the response and whether the people who have brought the allegations after an investigation are satisfied with the response. Absolutely. And I think at the end of of that process, there is the possibility that we will hear more about this from Labor if people do not feel that they've been taken seriously by the party. Mm, No, absolutely. Now, um, from Chris, I don't know the surname, Chris, apologies. Here's, here's the big question. Here's the huge question. Have young women like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins really turned the tide? Amy? Mm, I mean, they definitely, as been identified, have caused a moment here. Uh, and it's been, I think, pushed on by the accusations, which have been strenuously denied by Christian Porter as well, and the response to that. There is a very loud chorus of voices, mostly young women, who are refusing to be silenced and refusing to be pat pat on the head and told to go off and be good girls and let the adults deal with it. But I think we also need to acknowledge that there is a long, long list of people who have gone before who have raised these issues Mm. and that their voices have been so important to the conversation. We've had Chelsea Potter, Dania Mani, Rochelle Miller, has spoke on the culture and the powerlessness of staffers before. We've had Emma Hussar raise, you know, issues with party culture and parliament culture. We've had Saxon Mullins. We've had Hayley Foster. We've had Sherlene Campbell. We've had Jess Maguire, Nessa Turnbull-Roberts. We've had uh, Dr. Yees Rees. We've had so many people come forward and say, we need to deal with this. And I think we do need to examine why now that we have a face that we're starting to say, okay, yes, and why we weren't having some of these conversations when we've had atrocities happen for decades. I mean, when we've had the Hannah Clark case, when we had Courtney Heron, Lynette Daly, you know, Michaelia Dunn, who's going through the courts now. There have been so many moments that should have been watershed moments for Australia on this issue. And so many women who have had, and it has been mostly women, who have had to stand up and explain their pain and have their stories told and picked apart and questioned 
imagined before we got to this point. And I am so glad that we're here. I'm really, really glad that we're here and that we are seeing the response that we are. But we are still seeing people being torn down for telling their stories. And I just think we need to move beyond that. We do need action, but we also need the leaders of this country to stand up and say, free speech doesn't mean that you get to tear down a person who is telling you something uncomfortable about your society. Mm, Beautifully said. Anyone got anything to add to that? Here, here, all I would add is parliament reflects culture. And I think the, the alleged rape of a woman in Parliament House made people notice that there was something rotten in the culture. Mm. And, it, and it, it has resonated because, again, of the universality of the experience. It's a horrible incident, but so many people in Australian society have either direct experience with this or indirect experience with it, which is why it's carried in this instance. But Amy's point about why now is sort of an imponderable, really. I've been thinking about this a lot myself. I don't I don't really know why now. I'm just grateful for it. Paul, you want to say something? Yeah, it certainly feels like it has the momentum of a runaway freight train and the, and the political actors that have acted as if it will blow over, have have been run over, like Andrew Lamming thought a preemptive apology would work, but then sent messages where he said he didn't know what he was even apologising for, and it wasn't a one-day story. He, he was promising to leave Parliament within, within three or four days, and some of the political management of the issue has has caused more problems for the government. And so a short-term approach to it, assuming that it would run out of steam, hasn't worked. That's why you've now got inquiries into whether the PMO was briefing against Brittany Higgins' partner and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's sort of uh, the, the heavy-handedness is, it hasn't yielded the, the desired result. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes, kids, so let's, let's be snappy. And Greg Kenny asks a question for our age. Why are people so unkind? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants this? Come on. We're defeated by your question, Greg. We'd like we'd like to answer you. Come on, Sarah, you're a kind person. Well, I I don't know the answer to that, Greg. But we have a chocolate drawer in our office. <laughs> We're kind. Uh, it's a I, secure building, but you're welcome at any point. <laughs> I, I, I think people are unkind because they feel powerless, and you often see this on social media where people are just, you know, completely rude, you know, especially to female journalists, but are completely rude because they don't think that anyone sees them. And then if, you know, sometimes if you respond, reminding them that you're a human and that they shouldn't be abusing you or that acknowledging that they have an issue, even if they've expressed it in a, in a very offensive and confrontational way, then they can suddenly be a lot politer. I mean, some people are permanently unhinged some, yes. Sometimes you can. Sometimes, sometimes you can be surprised that when yeah. you where, can, make can, a connection, can unleash the inner human. Mm. A small. Large, I remember yes. I used to ride my bike around London, and you always used to cop abuse for whatever reason. And and someone said to me, the trick is to make eye contact and make connection, and then people remember that there's a human on that yeah. bus. Well, that's good advice. Yeah, I, I don't think that people are inherently unkind. I think there is a lot of kindness, and I think a lot of the the great acts of kindness and generosity are usually shown by those who know what it's like to live in an unkind situation or live somewhere where you know things aren't quite as generous for them. Uh, they have a little bit more of empathy for for people 
from their own experience. I think what Paul says is is right, that people who are unkind, it's because they feel powerless or they're not being seen. I think some people are unkind because they feel like something is being taken from them when power structures or societal norms are being shaken and they feel like they're going to lose their place and maybe they just feel like they got there and like, hey, I've worked hard to get to this point. Why do I now need to help somebody else up? We're all creatures of our own experiences and we're all the sum of our own parts. But I think by and large, if you can just remember that we are all just trying to do our best uh, and maybe just be a little bit more forgiving of people when they stumble, we might see that kindness spread a little bit further. Mandatory empathy training. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the perfect note to end uh, the show. Thank you so very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to my team, who you can hear are absolutely stellar. Thank you to the executive producer of the show, Miles Martignoni. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. You know the drill. Leave us a rating, review, tell all your friends, share the pod, etc. We'll be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.